The text for this morning's Advent sermon is from Job 19, the stands, or the verses 20 through 27. Let me read that once again. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And then after the sermon, we will sing about God's redemption of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked when we sing from Psalm 34 to stanzas 7, 8, and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that also includes you, boys and girls. It's almost Christmas time. Are you looking forward to it? I'm sure that you children are. We all are. It's a wonderful time of the year. It's time that family and friends get together and have fun. During these holidays, we can enjoy good food and good company and good cheer. Is there anything wrong with that? No. God gives us many things to enjoy. As long as you realize why we can celebrate. It is all because the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he came here on earth. It is because the Son of God came in the flesh and because he was born some 2,000 years ago in that little town of Bethlehem. But it is not because of anything you or I have done. It is only because of what God has done. Jesus Christ is God's gift to the world. He is a gift in the true sense of the word. When we give gifts, we always do it because somehow we want something out of it for ourselves. There always has to be something in it for us. It doesn't necessarily have to be another gift, but at least to receive some gratitude from another person in some form or another. We want to earn a place in somebody else's heart. We never give out of purely selfless reasons. That's impossible for us. By nature, we are too self-centered for that. But brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that's not how God gives. He gives without expecting anything in return. The gift of the Lord Jesus Christ to us is a complete, is a total gift of love. And it is such a wonderful gift. It is a gift of life. It is a gift of eternal life. The gift of the Son of God doesn't require anything from us. It's a gift that we can't earn in any way. 
There is nothing we ourselves can do or be in order to receive the gift of God's Son. You know, that is very hard for us to fully understand. It is therefore very hard for us to live out of the knowledge of God's unconditional love. That was especially hard for the friends of Job. These three friends thought that they had all the answers and that they knew exactly what God wanted. But in reality, they were very far from understanding. And so they made God to be someone he isn't. In the end, they made him out to be a monster. But such understanding wasn't just hard for them. It was also hard for Job in a different way. And it's hard for all of us. Have you ever wondered why the Jews, by and large, rejected the Lord Jesus? It's because they did not want to accept the unconditional gift of God. They wanted to earn their salvation. Now let me ask you, do you stand in judgment of them because of it? Do you wag your finger at them because of this? Do you also stand in judgment because of others who do not truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you see, that's where the problem comes in. It was also the big problem for Job. The friends of Job also stood in judgment. They said some very harsh and hurtful things to Job. And they spoke in ignorance and with a self-righteous smugness. Although they claimed to know God and the righteousness of his ways, they were in reality as blind as a bat. In this passage, we have here the oft-quote statement of Job, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. When someone quotes these words, they do this to show Job's strong faith in the midst of disaster and calamity and to show his clear vision of what will happen in the future, to show that he knew in the midst of his misery that the Christ is going to come and that through him he will be restored. But is that really true? Oh, sure, Job's faith was strong. But as we will see, what Job did see wasn't really all that clear to him. He saw, and yet he didn't. He did not have a clear picture of who God is and of what he would do. He didn't know exactly who the Redeemer was either. He certainly didn't see what we see now. We know who the Redeemer is. We know that he was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And so we can see much more clearly than Job could. But do you and I really have a clearer picture, a clearer vision? Do we really see the significance of that Redeemer? That's what I want to preach to you about this morning. I'll summarize my message as follows. Job yearns for understanding 
and justice and redemption. And we will see that he wants in the first place justice from God, in the second place pity from his friends, and in the third place salvation from his Redeemer. As Job ponders his terrible situation, he desperately seeks answers. He does that throughout the book leading up to this chapter. He is looking for justice from God. He doesn't understand what was happening to him, especially considering that he thought himself to be innocent. Not that he believed himself to be without sin, no, not at all. But he was of the firm opinion that whatever sins he had committed, he had confessed before God. And therefore he says to his friends, my sins is something between God and me. Don't you point them out to me. Even though he knew that there were also hidden sins, it was not because he tried to cover them up. Job had come clear before God. He was a man with a good conscience. He was innocent before God. Why then are these things happening to me? Job, in his agony, is trying to figure that out. He cries out to God in chapter 7, verse 20, If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? He wishes that he could make his case directly before God. Yet he realizes that even if he were able to go up to heaven and make his case there, that then that would still be an exercise in futility. For he asks in chapter 9, verse 15, Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I can only plead with my judge for mercy. Job thought that God punishes both the wicked and the righteous. And for that reason, he could only plead for God's mercy. Else God would slay him anyway, even though he is innocent. He makes no distinction between the wicked and the righteous. The friends of Job are in complete disagreement with him. According to them, God judges according to what you have done. God punishes the wicked and he blesses the righteous. That is their whole theology. And since Job is suffering, it must be because he has done something wrong and Job has to repent. And once he does that, then God will bless him once again. Basically, that is what all the arguments what the friends of Job came down to. That is what all those chapters leading up to chapter 19 deal with. Those kinds of arguments. They go round and around and around like a broken record saying the same thing over and over again in so many different ways. The friends of Job keep coming back to the fact that God is the God of justice and that he repays those according to what they have done. And so all three friends stand in judgment over Job. They point their finger at him. And they thought that they came with 
incontrovertible proof. They said, Job, there is no denying it. Open your eyes, you fool. That's the way it goes. That's the way it goes in the world. You can see that from the character of God himself. And you can see that from all the things that happen around you. You can see the cause and effect. To them, it only made sense that Job was the author of his own misfortune. They did not dare think otherwise. If Job was innocent and yet suffered as he did, then this could happen to anyone. Then it could happen that to them as well. And they did not want to ponder that possibility. There's a reason for everything. There's also a reason for suffering. It is only because of sin. Job, however, vehemently disagrees with them. He argues that God makes no distinction between those who are innocent and those who are wicked. Sometimes the wicked prosper even more than the righteous. Asaph, the author of Psalm 73, makes the same observation. He also complained about the injustices of God. We sang from it a moment ago. Such are the wicked. They are secure. Their wealth increases evermore. Surely in vain I've been pure-hearted. For all day long I suffer here. And with new grief each dawn draws near. How often does it not happen that wicked people do not face the same trials and tribulations as righteous people? as the people who love God and want to do his will. The righteous get punished while the unbelievers grow fat and sleek. It's true that it also happens the other way around. But that is especially where the frustration comes in. There seems to be no rhyme or reason for it. And that is what the great frustration is for Job. He doesn't know why. He doesn't understand what God is doing to him. And so he accuses God. He wants to draw God out. He wants God to give him an answer. In verse 11 of chapter 19, Job even accuses God of counting him amongst his enemies. And in verse 7, he accuses God that there is no justice. He says, I've been wronged. And then he further points his accusing finger at God by stating that he has alienated him from his friends, that God has made him odious to them, and that therefore they want nothing to do with him. Even his wife kept her distance because of his stinking breath, and it is all God who did it to him. What a cry of agony. And then... His friends add to his agony. They are no help to him. And so he says to them, have pity on me, my friends, have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Second point. In all the conversations that he has had with his friends, this is the first time that he asks for their pity. Prior to this, for example, in chapter 6, verse 15, he expressed nothing but contempt for the way that they treated him. He berated them for their treachery, and in verse 27, for their callousness. He also called them stupid, and he called them worthless. 
And further, he calls them also instruments of torture. And in the chapter we read, he says in verse 3, Ten times you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. And now here he asks for their pity. But don't think that he does that so that they will feel sorry for him. He already knows that that's not going to happen. Whatever he has said has already fallen on deaf ears. His friends have made up their minds about his guilt. And they are not about to change their minds. But what he wants them to do is to be silent. If you have nothing but accusations against me, then you might as well be quiet. Have pity. Keep your mouth shut. The hand of God has struck me. Observe. And then what does he do? He draws attention to his flesh. He says in verse 22, Will you never get enough of my flesh? Similar expression is found in Psalm 27, verse 2, where David complains that evil men advance against him to devour his flesh. It is, of course, not literally meant. It is not as if they're going to eat him like an animal, devour its prey. It means that they are defaming him, defaming him in a most horrible way so as to destroy him. And it's for that reason also that he asks them for pity. Be quiet. He says, I am nothing but skin and bones. Actually, in the original, it says, my bones stick to my skin and my flesh. That's also how the ESV has it in other translations. And from the original, it is clear that he means here that his flesh is keeping his bones together. His flesh has to keep his bones together because his bones no longer have any strength. It is an expression of the overpowering sense of weakness that he has because of being continually born, worn down by the accusations of his friends and because of the wrath of God that he feels being leashed upon him, unleashed upon him. And he also says that he has escaped with only the skin of his teeth. It's not that he has escaped by the skin of his teeth, as some translations have it. And as the expression goes in the English language, when we say that you have escaped by the skin of your teeth, then we mean that we have barely escaped. Whoever here in this text, it actually means quite the opposite. It is parallel to the expression of his flesh holding together his bones. As we know, there is no skin on teeth. And so he means that he has been delivered from death, but in such a way that he might as well be dead. There is no more skin left on his whole body to keep his bones together except the skin of his teeth. But that skin doesn't exist. And so he's as good as dead. He may be alive, but in reality he isn't. Brothers and sisters, people can be extremely cruel. The friends of Job were no friends at all. They were interested in saving their own skin by standing in judgment. They did not empathize with Job. 
they came with a superior attitude. They did nothing but point fingers. Do you know what Bildad said to Job, for example, about his children and the fact that his children died? He said in chapter 8, verse 3, that it was because of sin. That is why God took their lives, he says. Perhaps it wasn't your sin, Job, but it was certainly because of the sin of your children. I don't think that any of us have ever suffered as deeply as Job did. But we all have experienced something of what Job is experiencing here. And let's face it, we have also dished it out to others. We easily stand in judgment. We do it all the time. Somebody's child leaves the church, and we say, well, it's no wonder. His parents were not really that good an example. He comes from somewhat a dysfunctional family. Or, well, those kids didn't really amount to much anyway. They're always kind of rebellious. But we see someone who has a health problem. It's no wonder, they say. Look at the kind of lifestyle that he or she leads. He eats too much, or drinks too much, or smokes too much, and that's what you get. We're a lot like the friends of Job. We're a cruel bunch. Does that mean that we can't judge? Of course you can. And it is true that a lot of things happen to us because of specific sins. Bad things happen to us because of who we are, sinners. And sometimes a specific calamity can be directly tied to a specific sin. Indeed, often that is the case. And that is how God then also deals with us. And so the friends of Job were totally right when they spoke about the justice and truth of God in the way that he meets out his sentence against sinners. The friends of Job knew about the vast dimensions of God's justice and wisdom, and they could wax very eloquently about it all. Just listen to them. They were very good teachers in that regard. But there's one thing that they did not know about, and that was the vast dimension of God's love. Job's friends did not speak in love. They were not interested in Job's plight or predicament. They were interested only in maintaining their own integrity. They were interested only in showing off their superiority. These things weren't happening to them, so they must be better than Job. There is no love in their words. There was no understanding. There was no compassion. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, that is why many of the Jews during Christ's day did not expect his coming. They were self-righteous. They thought that because they came from such good stock, God's special people, that they didn't need a savior. And they thought that because of their good works, they were better than others. The Pharisees especially taught that. They beat their chest and they looked down at others less worthy than they. And indeed, if that's what your mindset is like, why would you need Christ? Why would you need a redeemer? 
And therefore, that message is just as true for us as it was for the friends of Job and for the Jews during Christ's day. Brothers and sisters, we're all sinners. And we had better be very careful how we stand in judgment over others. And if we do, we had better do it in love. Oh yes, God is a God of justice. But when you think about his justice, also think about his love and his patience and his compassion. It is because of the great compassion that he had for us as sinners that he sent his son. If you want to be critical, then do it in love. Do it with understanding. And do it in the realization that you are not any better than anyone else. You also deserve to be destroyed because of your sins. The friends of Job were too busy with themselves to understand what Job was going through. They heard what he said, but they clearly did not hear the reason why he said it. They didn't listen to him, and therefore they didn't feel his pain. Brothers and sisters, if you want to understand another person, then you had better enter their pain. And then you're not just interested in what they're saying and fall over all the words that they say because when you feel pain, you sometimes express yourself much more strongly than you should. And then sometimes you are wrong in what you're saying. But then you have to listen to why the person is saying what he is saying. And in order to do that, you have to be a person of compassion. You have to be patient. You have to make an effort. You have to want to understand where the other person is coming from, to stand in their shoes. It's only then that you can come to some understanding. Job didn't know exactly what he was looking for. But whatever he was looking for, he was looking for it with God. Because he knew that only with God could he find the answers. Job asked many questions. And he asked those questions because he had an insufficient view of God's wonderful, wondrous sovereignty. He did not understand that God can strike someone with great afflictions while at the same time showing his love. That is what he did to his son on the cross. He showed his wrath, and at the same time, he showed his love. And that is how he sometimes deals with us, too. Job did not grasp the great wisdom of God in the way that he deals with sinners. But can you imagine if Job did understand everything? What if God had told him about the conversation that he had with Satan in heaven before all this took place, before everything was taken away from him? What if God had revealed to Job that God was using him as a weapon to defeat Satan? And what if he had told him what the outcome would be? What do you think Job would have done? What would you or I do under those circumstances? 
Well, then we, all we would do is just sit back and, trust for, and trustfully wait for the battle to end. All you and I would do then is just to be a bystander and to watch God at work. We would not be engaged in the battle. We would not be... We would be passive bystanders and wait until once again we are on our feet. And then in such a case, Satan would have been vindicated. For what did Satan accuse God of? In the very beginning of the book, Satan accuses God of putting a hedge around Job and his household and everything he has. It's no wonder he serves you. Satan says, you have given him every earthly comfort and security he could desire, but take it all away, then he will serve you no longer. And so Job had to live a life of faith. And Job was not allowed to see what exactly was in store for him. For then he would no longer be living a life of faith. And that is what Job has to do. And that is what he has to show also to Satan. That is also what the patriarchs had to do. That is what Abraham had to do. God promised him a land that he could go to, but he didn't know where or what, and he walked in faith. And that's what every believer has to do. We have to live out of faith. Job had to seek God and to trust him in the midst of uncertainty. He had to seek him and cry out to him for deliverance from it all. And cry out to him he did. In his anguish he cried, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. There's been much debate about this statement of Job. It's often quoted out of context. As if Job has such a clear vision at this time. As if now suddenly he reached the heights of understanding. But brothers and sisters, he didn't. He didn't know exactly who the Redeemer was, how he would come or when he would come. He did not really know anything about him. But yet, it's a wonderful statement of faith. It is a wonderful statement of faith in the midst of uncertainty. He knows that in one way or the other that God would rescue him. For that is what a redeemer does. A redeemer sets you free when you are in a bad spot. Well, Job knows that there is no one and nothing in the world that can save him except God. Because he knows that he is the almighty creator. Job believes even though he has still so many questions, he believes. He hangs on to God for dear life because he knows that God is the only reality for him. Job also cries out, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved on rock forever. To state that is also an act of faith. For at this point, Job is convinced that he is going to die. The end is near. But he wants the declaration of his innocence to stand before God. So it must be written down. His words have to, be, have to reach heaven. 
From there he expects his salvation. From there he expects justice. It was a plea for mercy and a cry for salvation. And he also speaks about the restoration of his flesh. He knows that his flesh will once again surround strong bones. For he says that after his skin has been destroyed, he will see God in the flesh. The flesh will once again hold his bones together and he will see him with his own eyes. What Job does see at this point is clear and yet it is still so blurry because he doesn't know exactly yet what he is talking about. He hasn't seen Christ yet, but he knew that he was coming. He put his lot in the hands of God. He is convinced that there will be an end to decay and suffering. But such restoration will come about, will not come about in the way that the friends of Job envisage it. It doesn't come about because of good works. It's not because of a pious and good life that you lead that these things will come true. It is only through faith. Faith in a God who is just and at the same time loving and compassionate. Brothers and sisters, we don't know many things either. We know that Christ came. That's why we celebrate his birth. And we know that we will also die and rise again from the dead, that we will stand here upon this earth. But in the meantime, there are so many things that we don't know. What twists and turns are our lives going to take? What happens exactly when we die? What will it be like once we are in heaven? What will it be like once heaven and earth are reunited? We don't know. But we do know that if you want to find any answers, you can only find it with God, a living God, a loving God. And a God who knows what he's doing. And it will bring whatever adversary comes your way to our good. That's our God, brothers and sisters. I know that my Redeemer lives. Yes, brothers and sisters. He's alive. He is seated at the right hand of God. And he has bought you and me free from sin and the devil. But it is only through faith that you can have him. It is only when you trust in him in all circumstances of life. And not in yourself. Or in your own standing. Or in your own accomplishment. That you can fully appropriate God. You can only have him through faith. He is our God and our Redeemer. No matter what happens, we can trust in him. Our Redeemer lives. That's the wonderful message of Christmas. Amen. Mm -hmm.